You're listening to Potato Candy Network. Hello and welcome back to Blank Monster. I am your host, Marie. And here in Blank Monster, we go over two or three monsters from the Monster Manual that I think are either underused or overused. And I bring you a couple of ideas on how to use them in your next scenario. We are working on the fifth edition Monster Manual going A to Z. And this week we are on to the letter K. We only have two monsters this week that we are covering, but they are both rather large topics. So we're going to have to try to get through them quickly. We are heading to the ocean, however, as both creatures are going to be dealing with water slash underwater, kind of. Our first monster is the Kraken. Now, the Kraken doesn't seem to get used quite as much as a very similar creature, the Aboleth. The Aboleth is very beginning monster manual letter A. It's one a lot of people know because if you deal with the ocean or with interdimensional travel, it might pop up. Its sibling, kind of the Kraken, is much bigger, much tougher, and honestly kind of has some cool stuff to it that I think if you really want to ramp up a campaign, especially for a high-level party, I think the Kraken is going to do a lot more than Aboleth will. First of all, the size of this creature, because everyone knows the idea of release a Kraken, and it's a giant creature. You're not far off. It is classified as a gargantuan monstrosity, meaning a titan size. And yes, that is the official D&D size index. In actual terms, because that is a word that's just made up, it's about 50 feet. So you're looking at not quite a blue whale, but very close to blue whale in size. So this thing is huge. It has a ton of immunities, which if you remember from some past episodes, that means that it takes no damage from certain attacks. So you need a high level party for this. I actually did the math because this thing has over 400 hit points. Challenge rating is 23, which is, I think, the highest you can get with D&D. Um, correction, 30 is the highest you can go. So, you know, we're kind of close, I guess, within the ballpark. Um, Abelth is only a level, or a challenge rating of 10, by the way, so this thing is definitely bigger. Doing the math for it, though, for a party of four people, level 20, so max level, this is a hard fight. For six people, level 16, it goes down to medium, but that's only because there are six people. If you have any less than that, this fight is almost impossible. So the Kraken in a straight-out fight is going to be tricky, but there are some ways to do it if you wanted to, um, and we'll talk a bit about that later. Background on the Kraken, though. The Kraken were originally servants of the gods. Um, when the gods' war, whatever you want to call that is, ended, they were basically able to gain freedom, and they determined to never be bound to anyone ever again. They're kind of just a chaotic force. They are listed as chaotic evil, meaning they just want to see the world burn. That's all they want. They might help out a little bit, but it's going to be ultimately for destruction. So no matter what they give you, no is going to have repercussions later on. I really like this quote from the book um, that I think sums them up pretty well. The Kraken is a primeval force that obliterates the greatest achievements of civilizations as if they were castles in the sand. Which, considering the size of this creature, that really makes a lot of sense. These things can just walk into a city and destroy it. So you're thinking Godzilla here. They are mostly found in the ocean. 
You can see them by tentacles, obviously, as they move and attack ships just, just happen to be in their way. They also can release an inky poison cloud, so kind of like a squid in that sense. They are not limited to the ocean, though. They can breathe air, meaning they can go up rivers to nest in lakes. So if you need a Loch Ness monster stand-in, this is a great option. They are highly intelligent. They don't speak, but they understand languages, and they can communicate telepathically. So kind of like with the Mind Flayers and Abolis, they can command people without actually speaking. Because of this, they are often seen as gods themselves. So they can have cults, they can have servants. There's even listed in here in the Monster Manual a book referenced as the Knight of the Kraken Cult. So you can very easily tie in a group serving them for some unknown purpose. Because again, the Kraken just wants to see the world burn. Someone may want to use them for power, and they're more willing to hand over power in the short term in order to gain destruction long term. If they do not have a cult, they oftentimes will use followers of Alhydra, hopefully I'm saying that right, who is the princess of the elemental plane of water, so an evil, I guess, half-deity, I don't really know technically what she's classified as, but obviously a plane of water, krakens, makes sense. So there are other followers they might use. And as I mentioned before, they can give good things. They can affect their surroundings to actually control the fish life. So they could bring bountiful fishing grounds if people gave them sacrifices or were pleasing to them. But ultimately, they do seek destruction, so serving them is not going to be a long-term game. Stat-wise, they have a couple of cool things for their regional effects. Regional effects, basically anything around their lair, is warped by their presence. So six miles out from where they have their lair, you've got a couple of things. They can alter the weather at will. This is effectively a control weather spell, if you know what the details of that are. So they can make it storm, they can make it dry, they can make it to where there's no wind, which if you're in the middle of the ocean is really bad. They can also control the, again, the fish life. Any aquatic creature in the range of their lair with a very low intelligence score of two is charmed and is aggressive towards intruders. Now, yes, they can use this in theory to bring fishing grounds more fish goldfish and you know tuna bass and all that stuff is not bad when sharks are getting mega aggressive though that's a problem and when other sea life that has a very low intelligence score but very high stat block it's very um aggressive that's another problem so just because like well it's fish what's the problem all sea life meaning anything that's classified as an animal is going to be aggressive so that's a lot such as blue whales I don't know stat block for that, but I'm willing to bet they do not have an intelligence above a 2, which means they would be aggressive, and that is terrifying when you consider they are bigger than the Kraken is. So that can be a major effect on an area. The last regional effect is water elementals actually appear. Water elementals are basically from the plane of water again. They have no physical form. They are just a swirling mass of water. The elementals cannot leave the water. And they basically have no intelligence or charisma. So they are effectively just terrain issues. Now, they can destroy anything in their path, which they will probably do, and they will drown people because it's basically sentient water <laughs> that is trying to drown people. So it creates a lot of hazards in the area that you're trying to get to. So again, Kraken can bring a lot of good things, probably bring you more bad, though. And lastly, I want to touch on the layer actions. Now... 
because it is a challenge rating of 23, it has a layer. It does get legendary actions as well on top of that. And that's going to be kind of some of the things it can do here. We're not going to do the actual legendary action. That's too technical for this. One of their layer effects is they can control the current. They can increase the current. If you consider the fact that your party is probably underwater to fight this thing, that means that they are going to have to figure out how to basically swim faster or not be pushed back. Or if they're not underwater and can't breathe, they have to get to the surface very, very quickly and they can't. The Kraken can also cause your party to become vulnerable to lightning and then take lightning damage <laughs> because, again, weather effects. So in a straight-up one-to-one fight, the Kraken is a very difficult enemy to challenge. And it doesn't really create a lot of interesting scenarios. But there are a lot of effects that it has and a lot of lore around it that I think can create some really fun scenarios. So firstly is the idea of the environmental effects. So the first option is a Kraken has come to a new lair. This lair happens to be nearby a local fishing town, maybe a little bit larger village, maybe a bit smaller, depending upon where you want to put your campaign or setting. And it's having disastrous effects in the area. You've got maybe increased tide, storms are coming in and going out without any kind of warning or seeming logic. You've got elementals that are popping up in the ocean. You've got the fish are more aggressive. Again, shark attacks are a thing. And your party somehow will discover a kraken is moved in within six miles. Now, I would not make them a level enough to fight this thing. And they will not be able to convince it to leave because it's not going to care. But they may be able to relocate. And that can be where your challenge comes in. If this town maybe has limited access to the mainland, maybe it's an island town. Just off the coast and you have to figure out how to get everyone out of town. Maybe you have to convince the town to move in the first place. Maybe this is a historical site. Maybe it's a family ground. Whatever it is, you need to move the town. And that in itself is going to be the challenge with all of these effects going on that the Kraken is causing on top of it. And if you make it really mad at you, it's going to make those things worse. The second option leans more into the cult side of the Kraken. You have a cult that now claims that this town needs to offer sacrifices to the new ocean god or else will be destroyed. You could have this be either a new group that has come in or it could be an existing person in town who has had a revelation of sorts. And they are bringing this before the town to try to basically save them, so to speak. Um, so that's a fairly simple option. You have to just decide what sacrifice you want to claim is going to be made. Maybe the person is claiming a bigger sacrifice and was asked just because they can get something out of it. If you wanted to do a one-on-one -on -one fight with a Kraken, if your party was high enough level, this would probably be the option to do it with because then you've got the cult leader that you're going to be butting heads with to try to figure out what's going on. And the third option is going to put you in the middle of the ocean, away from nothing. You have been shipwrecked on the island and you hear a voice telling you it can get you off this island but you have to free it. What's going on here is there's a Kraken that's trapped on this island that is telepathically talking to your party that has basically created a death trap in order to lure people here to try to free it. They can free it if they want to. If they don't, they aren't getting off the island really anytime soon. If they do free it, it might get them, get them off the island. You never know. You know, Maybe it sees some value in taking them with them. If they are evil and he thinks, hey, these guys might serve me if I take them. 
or I might just leave you on the island anyway. So it's much more of an island kind of Robson Crusoe issue of do we release the beast or do we literally keep it here? And I just realized I should have made this a release the Kraken scenario. Dang it. I missed out. Anyway, so that's going to be it for the Kraken again. There's <laughs> probably the most well-known creature in legend because to release the Kraken from Wrath of the Gods. But it's got a lot of fun effects within D&D and even later editions probably have stuff if you can find it. So you can definitely play around with how you want to set it up and what it can do. Next up, we have a really fun creature for D&D. They really don't get used as much as they need to. And um, for more on their stats, because I don't go into too much of that on my show. Haha. <laughs> well, I say that and I do, but whatever. Um, our friends over at Theoretical Insights of D&D, Rob and Jeremiah, actually did a, I think it was top 11 of the quarter challenge monsters for your game, and Kutoa was on that list. Um, and they covered it very well. It definitely needs to be more games. And just, there is one aspect of them that makes them the perfect monster for any Underdark campaign. And it needs to be used in everything. So Kutoa are fish-like humanoids. So... For Call of Cthulhu people out there, deep ones, that's what we have going on here. And I'm not even kidding you, that is so close to accurate. Because there's so much about them that you could easily reskin them to be deep ones for a Call of Cthulhu-themed D&D game. They are, again, a creature that was enslaved and twisted by the Mind Flayer Empire. And they were left as just basically insane, rambling people. So they invent gods to protect themselves from threats with a... Very strong religious fervor. So much so. This is the fun part about Kutoa. If enough Kutoa believe in a god, it will take a physical form. They are described as god makers for a reason. That they will create something, believe in it so strongly it becomes a god. One of their most revered gods is Blip, Blip Dual Blop. Blip Dual Pulp. Blip Dual Pulp. The Sea Mother, because there's no way to say that correctly. <laughs> um, not with currently getting on cold, at least. <laughs> but it is described as a female human with a crawhead fish and a shell on her shoulders. Most likely, the inspiration for that was a human statue with the head of a crustacean just stuffed on top of it. So they will actually create gods. Now, it doesn't say exactly how much power those gods have, so that can be kind of up to you as a DM to interpret, but that is a fascinating concept for a game. Again, they were originally twisted by the Mind Flare Empire. They're now kind of their own group. They will often end up serving Abolus because of that kind of subservient um, element. Now, they obviously don't really care about the Abolus as far as outcome goes. They just look for something to serve that they think will protect them. So they kind of will blindly follow. Because they can create gods, this fanatical faith also gives them basically powers through this. Um, there's a fun fact with the clerics and paladins, as far as the player side goes, that you don't have to be linked to a deity. You can serve an ideal. And if you have enough belief and basically follow that ideal, you can still have divine powers. It's a weird thought, but it kind of plays into what the Kuto do. They have so much belief in their made-up god that they basically can give themselves divine abilities. So the archpriests actually have abilities through that deity because of their religious fervor. And they then can pass on that powers 
to underlings that are often called whips. Um, a lot of time the whips are actually some of their children. So if the archpriest dies, then the, its ch children will basically fight to see who's the next archpriest. So it's really fascinating. And if you do play as a Kuotoa, because in 3.5 they describe that as playable, you probably want to play as a rogue and a rogue cleric option, which kind of makes sense. The other thing for you as a DM to keep in mind is their weapons within Kuotoa society are designed to capture, not kill. Because usually they are bringing slaves and prisoners to their deity or person who is leading them in their deity. So if you do want to have a way of capturing your party, if you want to put them in an encounter that might be over their heads, Kuto is a good option because it's not going to instantly be party wiped. They're not going to try to kill your party. They're going to try to capture them. So your party can break out later. They can cause other problems if they want to. One aspect I do want to bring up is from 4th edition, which is the idea there's actually madness that taints the Kuotoa culture. Um, and this is because of the you know, enslavement and being twisted by the mind flayers that the archpriests and those who monitor the local populace, <laughs> so to speak, they have to make sure that madness doesn't pop up and spread. Because it can actually cause them to leave entire cities in ruin and leave behind just mad Kuotoa roaming the place. So in that sense, Kuotoas are kind of unstable because at any point, there's a balance they have to keep. They have to keep enough faith in this DET to keep it alive and active, but not so much that they go insane. So they have to balance it out very well, which is interesting. So a couple of ideas for these guys, because they are fairly weak as far as enemy goes. So the culture is, I think, more what's interesting for them as far as creating a story. Um, the first <laughs> is the Godmaker aspect, of course. <laughs> you have either someone in your party can do this, and I'll say that cautiously because I know someone's going to try this now. Or you could have a big bad who's doing this as well if you want your party to be good characters. Hint, hint. But someone is trying to become a god, and they've realized if they get the Kuoto to believe in them enough, they will gain godlike powers. So they are trying to find a relic from an old temple to persuade the archpriest that, yes, I am a god. I can do these things for you. Basically, think Rodel Dorado, right? You believe we're gods? Yes, let's be gods. And if I can prove it to Kuotoa, I become one. So your party can either be trying to get this relic before the big bad does. They can be retrieving it for your big bad. Maybe they're hired. Maybe they're friends. Maybe your party's one's trying to become gods themselves. You know, this easily could be an evil campaign option, right? But the goal is to get this old relic, bring it back. And, of course, you can have all the Underdark creatures you want to along the way. You could have Mad Kuotoa. You could even have a rival Kuotoa community that maybe serves a different deity. That maybe, like, if you fight this god, you can prove your god yourself kind of thing. But just bringing back that relic will hopefully cement their belief in you to give you godlike powers. You can play with that as a DM as to whether or not that's actually going to happen, but I think that would be really fun to kind of see how much do you want to become a god, right? Like, how much are you willing to risk? Next option leans more into the madness side. Your party will discover these lost ruins in the Underdark, which is not super unheard of, right? There's a lot of cultures down here. You have the Drow, Mind Flayers, Kuotoa. You've got lots of people down here that have kind of risen and fallen over time. But while they're there, they hear, you know, these mutterings and just like flish the fish sounds in the background. Really lean into your deep one lore, this Cthulhu nerds, because this is a great time to pull out all the Cthulhu nonsense you want to, 
because again, these Kutoas are mad, but they are also still believing in something. What that is could be something with a lot of tentacles because mind flares exist. So you know what? Maybe they've actually brought back Dagon or they brought back something that is similar to Dagon. And so your party has to navigate these ruins to get through this without running into a mad Kotoa and the mad god that they have created somehow. Uh, so your party has to navigate these ruins without running into anything. The last option is a bit more political. So you have an ex-whip who has been either kicked out or has been demoted within his Kutoan society. And he is trying to usurp the existing deity. Now, you could decide if he wants to establish a deity. Maybe he just wants to take over power. Um, depending upon kind of the level of your party, I think it would be difficult to establish a new deity at a low level. But you could at least help him, you know, maybe become the new archpriest. So you need to, in some way, destroy the current deity or the symbol of the current deity to show the archpriest has lost power. So your party is going to be maybe going in. Maybe they're going to be causing problems. Maybe they need to confront the archpriest. Arch maybe they're sneaking around a little bit. I wouldn't make it an all-in of go in there, punch DT in the face, and walk out kind of thing, right? Like, that's not really going to prove a point. It needs to be a bit more of a subterfuge of turning the people against the archpriest and its DT that's claiming. And so your ex-whip can come in and say, but this person we can follow instead, right? So a bit more subterfuge and political play there and of course Kuotos are not highly intelligent but they're not idiots either like they're going to be able to see through some stuff so your party has to be careful what they do and don't say and what they do and don't do in disrespecting the deity because again these Kuto will follow that deity you don't just walk and start bad mouthing it that is going to be all for this episode we're just going to cover those two because again whew, the Kraken and Kuto have a ton to them that you can use even just in a one-on-one -on -one fight there's still a lot you can do um, the Kuotoa have three variants in the Monster Manual. We have the Archpriest, the Whips, and just a standard Kuotoa citizen. The Kraken has a ton of legendary actions it can take. It has a ton of just normal actions it can take. Neither of these things are going to be easy in a fight. So there's a lot of options outside of that you can use to be able to pull them into the game a little bit more. But that will be it for this episode. We're going to be moving on to letter L next week. So we'll be dealing with Lycanthropes a little bit, which will be fun. Let me know um, for the letters coming up what creatures you want me to go over. If you've got any ideas that you want to pitch to me or how you'd use some of the past ideas I've mentioned. Again, if you decide you want to become a god in your next game, let me know how that goes. <laughs> and I will see you next time. Hello. Bob Spuds here on the scene once again reporting for Potato Candy Network. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing on your podcasting app of choice. If you have a scenario prompt you want us to use, send it to us on social networking with Instagram and Facebook at Potato Candy Network. And if you really liked us, consider supporting us on Patreon for bonus content monthly, such as behind-the-scenes sneak peeks, inspirations, and future episode previews. Check out our brother show, Dreadful Tales, for some taut-tension-full, truly terrifying tales of terror. <laughs> Got that on the first try, you know. And finally, please leave us a review, as it helps your recommendations and helps others find the hard work we do here at Potato Candy Network. Oh, and friendly reminder, if someone asks you if you're a god, don't think of marshmallows. <laughs> Nobody likes that guy. <laughs>